In March 1856, a small, somber column of Mexican soldiers prepared to leave Tucson for the last time. It had been eight decades since the troops once stationed at Tubac had moved north to occupy the site. And we know as well as anyone how much they had suffered during that time, from native raids to chronic supply shortages to the extreme heat of the Sonoran Desert. But word had come down that the United States and Mexico had finished the process of finalizing the borders between the two nations and that Tucson was on the wrong side of that line. With more Americans coming through the area, the small contingent, never well supplied or supported, began the process of moving those who wanted to southward. And as they were marching away behind them, the stars and stripes were being raised for the second time in Tucson's history. This time, however, that flag would stay there. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 28, Adios al México. With the Gadsden Purchase now pretty much in the bag, the Americans wasted no time in seeing how they could best get people through their new territory. In January 1854, so after the purchase had been signed, but still months before it had been ratified by the Congresses of both countries, a railroad survey was already underway. This survey was to establish a railroad line between San Diego and El Paso, skirting along the 32nd parallel, which is the line of latitude that serves as the state boundary between New Mexico and Texas, if you want a visual image. The project had been given the blessing of Mexican President Santa Ana, who was still a year away from realizing just how angry the giving away of more territory had made everybody in his country. Heading up the work was Lieutenant John G. Park of the Army Corps of Topographical Engineers. This isn't Park's first rodeo in Arizona, as he had been part of Sitgreaves' survey of the 35th parallel through northern Arizona back in 1851. Specifically, he was tasked with finding a railroad route that would pass near the Odom villages along the Gila, near present-day Sacaton, and would cross into New Mexico without dipping into Sonora, like Cook's wagon train had done. The group would make their way across southern Arizona, arriving in Tucson in February 1854, where Park would note that the Santa Cruz River was a running stream of about a foot deep at the time. He also estimated the population of Tucson to be, all in all, roughly 600. Water and wood were a constant worry for the expedition, and Park would say in his final report that there were only nine places between the Odom villages and El Paso that had a permanent water supply. I'll also throw in here that Park's military escort for this expedition was led by Lieutenant George Stoneman, who we last saw on a sinking boat in the Gila River during the march of the Mormon Battalion back in episode 21. The real accomplishment of this expedition is locating a route through Arizona on the north side of the Chiricahua Mountains at a place called Apache Pass. 
This pass would become a landmark for future wagon trains heading west, and will even be part of the route for the Butterfield Overland Mail in a few years. The downside, however, is that it was called Apache Pass for a reason. With local water sources in the area, it had long been the traditional grounds of Apache bands. Bands, you might have realized by now, that were none too keen on giving up any land to anyone. Once hostilities between the Americans and Apache really break out in a few short years, Apache Pass would become the site of many an ambush. Most wagon companies approaching the pass did so with a good deal of apprehension and loaded guns. But while it was good for a wagon road, besides all the Apache attacks, of course, Park could see that it had too steep a grade and too many arroyos to cross to make for a suitable railroad line. So in November 1854, Park got back to surveying, this time for a grander project to connect Benicia, California, near San Francisco, all the way to Fort Fillmore, which used to sit near Mesilla, New Mexico. It was during this second trip in 1854 and 1855 that he would survey another route that went north of Dos Cabezas Peak, which sits more or less directly east from Wilcox. This route eliminated the grade problem of going through Apache Pass, as well as shaved 30 miles off the trip, so it was well worth the extra survey. Of course, we know from last week's episode that it will be literally decades before anyone followed up on his recommendation due to that nasty Civil War business. But once the Southern Pacific began laying track across Arizona, they would follow Park's route. And that suitable stretch of desert is also why Interstate 10 today makes the curve that it does between Wilcox and Bowie. So, good job, Lieutenant Park. For your reward, uh, let's see, you get to fight in and survive the Civil War and eventually become superintendent of West Point. But while Park was making his initial survey in 1854 from west to east, another private railroad survey was happening from east to west. Remember Andrew B. Gray, the surveyor whose hissy fit over the Bartlett-Conde line eventually led to Congress rejecting it and indirectly to the Gadsden Purchase itself? Well, he's now back in Arizona. After being booted from the commission in 1852 because of loud, repeated objections, Gray had joined forces with the newly formed Texas Western Railroad Company to find a way to get trains between New Mexico and California. His hiring also shows the revolving door between government office and private business at the time to exploit an opportunity to first put track through the new territory. In a couple of years, Gray will publish a report about the feasibility of a railroad line along the 32nd parallel, though he also suggested one running a little lower and maybe swinging through Tubac. While on this survey, Gray and company found themselves in the area of Tubac in April 1854. When they approached Gandra's Calabasas Ranch, they met a large group of hostile Apache, around 200 strong, bent on destroying it. Because things were still copacetic between the Americans and Apaches at this time, this force talked freely with the surveying party about their plans. A member of Gray's party even comments on being impressed by the two Mexican captives leading it. 
impressed by their ferocity, that is. Historian James Officer recounts that the survey party next encountered a large force of Mexican soldiers and Apache Manso under the command of Captain Hilarion Garcia, who is now in charge of Tucson. Garcia and his men were in the area lying in wait for an expected Apache attack from the very same force that the survey party just met. However, Officer fails to record whether the survey party actually warned the Mexicans about having seen this force just up the road. They may very well have, because the Americans camped a few hundred yards away from the old church at Calabasas and had something of front row seats to the battle that followed. As the survey party ate lunch, yes, they watched the battle go down while eating, the Mexicans suddenly began corralling their animals while women and children ran for cover. A bugle sounded as the Mexicans attacked the approaching Apaches, which turned into a great rout for the natives. Afterward, the Mexicans showed off their grisly trophies, including 14 sets of ears and the severed head of one of the leaders that had so impressed the Americans. It was a short time after this battle at Calabasas that Garcia was made the overall commander of the Tucson sector, with Gandra's ally Andres Zenteno having either been replaced or carried out his threat to relocate further south out of harm's way. Garcia followed up his victory at Calabasas with an expedition against the Apaches in Aravaipa Canyon and was able to recover a small herd of cattle that had been stolen from the community of Imures down in Sonora. We are up to mid-July 1854 now, when Garcia received an unusual delegation at Tucson. Some of the Apache leaders had sent the women of their band down to negotiate a peace with Tucson. Garcia wrote to Gandra immediately to request instructions on how to proceed. The response is interesting because it shows a level of concern about the relatively recent political state of affairs. Gandra specifically says that Garcia could not negotiate with the Penal, Sierra Ancha, and Sierra Blanca bands. Why? Because they lived north of the Gila River, in American territory. Curiously, though, he does say that Garcia could treat with the Aravaipa Apache, even though the recently ratified Gadsden Purchase also squarely put them on the American side of the line, too. It also put Tucson in the United States, but it will take a couple more years before the Mexicans would officially hand over control. If the Apaches, or at least the ones Garcia was allowed to negotiate with, did agree to a peace, Gandra said that the treaty should require them to settle near Tucson or Santa Cruz. They should also return any Mexican captives they might have. In exchange, Gandra promised to provide rations of wheat and corn, plus additional payments should they help fight off other hostile Apache bands. If this deal ever went through, I don't know. In the shuffle of the changing from Mexico to the U.S., this may have simply been overlooked, or it was like all the other fragile peace talks before it and went nowhere. A couple months later, in September 1854, we find the Mexicans near Santa Cruz collaborating with a party of Texans to recover cattle stolen in an earlier Apache raid. 
The Texans and a party of 25 Mexican civilians managed to find the Apache, killing 21 of them, freeing a Tucson man that had been captured four years beforehand, and recovering 57 head of cattle. However, these cows were not the ones stolen from the Texans, but all had Mexican brands on them. The Texans decided to distribute the cattle to everyone who participated, something that the Mexicans naturally objected to, seeing as none of them belonged to the Texans. The Mexican commander made the mistake of taking the Texan leader at his word when he assured him that he would discuss the matter with Captain Garcia in Tucson, who could make a final judgment. In case you are wondering, yeah, they never saw those cows again. At this point in our narrative, the Gadsden Purchase is official, so enterprising Yankees of every stripe and moral alignment, though many seem to have been some type of neutral ranging from lawful to chaotic, were now beginning to flood into the former Mexican territory, and in some cases, not so former Mexican territory. But we are going to double back on them next week when we fully get into those not-so-subtle land pirates, the filibusters. For now, we are going to charge right into what I've been hinting at for a while now, the end of Mexican rule over Arizona. We find a cattle train running through Tubac in September 1854, possibly the same Texan company who just snookered the Santa Cruz commander. They report a few soldiers still stationed there at this time. However, subsequent accounts don't record anyone living at the old Presidio, so these soldiers must have been reassigned to Tucson or Santa Cruz shortly afterward. Down in Calabasas, we find Gandara's sheep ranch being hit by natives a few months after Garcia's company had defended it. Fifty sheep had been killed, with many more having been driven off by the raiders. Gandra, who was in the governor's office yet again after a brief absence, writes at the time that he hoped the Americans would send soldiers to protect his investment. The end of 1854 is when we find Emery, Ilaregui, and the other members of the newest iteration of the U.S.-Mexican Boundary Commission coming through to finalize their survey of the new international border. It's during the beginning of 1855 when Emery met with those local native leaders to discuss U.S. policy, which we touched on in our last episode. Captain Garcia actually helped Mitchler and his branch of the survey expedition as they surveyed the stretch of hostile-looking desert west of Nogales. So, command of Tucson was turned over to Ensign Joaquin Comodaran, son of Tucson's late captain, who I mentioned very briefly back in episode 25. In this role, Comodaran was tasked with preparing things for the eventual handover to the United States. For example... In May 1855, he inventoried all the furnishings in the churches at Tucson, San Javier del Bac, and Tumacacri before locking the buildings. He handed the keys over to a man named Jose Maria Martinez, who was apparently sticking around, with strict orders that they were only to be opened when a priest came to visit, with everything put back in its proper place and the churches locked again once the visit was over. Now that we are coming to the actual implementation of U.S. rule over the territory, the Mexican citizens were facing a choice similar to the one outlined in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, namely, stay in the place your family has potentially called home for decades now, 
or head south to stay in Mexico. Article 5 of the Gadsden Purchase specifically said that the provisions respecting Mexican citizens in the now U.S. areas would be granted the same options as those in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. So they could move to Mexico, stay but keep Mexican citizenship, or stay and become U.S. citizens. State historian Thomas Sheridan says that many residents in the area covered by the Gadsden Purchase welcomed the change over to the U.S. After suffering for decades on the periphery of attention by the Mexican government, this could mean stability and the chance to receive actual protection from American troops. This could also open up whole new markets for their goods, providing a shot in the arm for their economy. And, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, this was their home. They'd lived there for years, fought and bled over it. Sonora, Sheridan writes, was the dangerous, poverty-stricken past. Arizona was the uncertain but hopeful future. So when the transfer actually happened, there would be no mass exodus. But that didn't mean there wasn't still some hand-wringing over whether to choose their home or their country. Ensign Comodoran was tasked with making a final roster of the military officers in September 1855. What's funny about this list is that half the soldiers weren't actually at their assigned post. Many were off helping the Boundary Commission finish up its survey, while more were on extended duty in Ures. It also appears that one had deserted from the survey commission duty and was now sitting in a jail cell. The roster also contains two non-Mexican names, John M. Pinkston and Friedrich Gorlitz. These two were already living at Tucson and had become involved in the affairs of the community. Knowing that the garrison at Tucson was going to move south soon due to the changing border, Gorlitz helped draft a petition to have American troops from New Mexico sent immediately to replace them. I personally find it rather funny that it was the German-born Gorlitz who drafted this petition, which was written in Spanish. The petition also points out that Tucson's population had been double-hit in recent years by both the cholera epidemic and gold fever. The sending of troops would also allow for the development of the area's rich mineral wealth, it added. Gorlitz attached the names of 54 Mexican residents to this petition, in addition to identifying himself as one of eight American citizens already living in the community. But while Gorlitz and others were getting ready for the new bosses to come in, Ensign Comodoran, acting commander of Tucson, was trying to make sure that the old established families in the settlement would be well provided for. As I mentioned in passing in episode 23, when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, land ownership records were a complete mess. During the Spanish and Mexican eras, a casual, lax approach to knowing who owned what had prevailed. There were some places where the alcaldes or jueces de paz had written records, but mostly people relied on traditional understanding of ownership. After all, these were small communities, so Diego's grandmother certainly remembered that Juan's father had set up a farm on that one spot of land some 20 years back. And when there actually had been documentation, 
those could easily be destroyed during an Apache raid, by rodents or insects, or even just get lost in the shuffle of everything. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the terms of the Gadsden Purchase clearly spelled out that those Mexican citizens who wished to continue living in the U.S. would have their land rights respected. The only kicker is that the terms also spelled out that those land rights had to be, quote, located and duly recorded in the archives of Mexico, end quote, in order to gain that protection. With the Americans set to take over, many began to panic a bit that their understanding of where their property was would not be recognized by the U.S. So what we find is people coming to Ensign Comodoran in 1855 to get a last-minute document attesting to their holdings. Leading Tucson citizen Teodoro Ramirez, who had been key in keeping the troops from starving over the years, came to Comodoran, who also happened to be his nephew, in March of that year. He was looking to get an official record of the land he had bought from the Apache Monso way back in 1828, as well as buy two adjacent properties. Comodoran was able to verify the purchase and handed over the coveted document showing Ramirez's land rights. Ramirez would come back in May to register yet another piece of land he had bought nearly 30 years beforehand. In September, Ramirez's brother, Eustachio, appeared in Comodoran's office to get a document saying he owned his house. He had bought it years ago, on a date he couldn't recall. So Comodoran had to find the original seller, place him under oath, and inquire if the purchase had in fact happened. After that, he found two other elders of the community who could tell him that the seller had inherited the land from his father, who had constructed the house more than 40 years ago. There was not a shred of physical evidence for this chain of ownership, but Comodoran dutifully wrote up a document showing that Eustachio owned the house. In January 1856, Comodoran would also write up the first recorded purchase of land from a Mexican by an American. George Leach, who'd been in the community maybe a matter of days, bought a field near El Pueblito. He had paid 20 pesos for it to a Mexican widow who had bought it years beforehand from a native. She received a deed for it from Comodoran, then promptly sold it to Leach. Leach would also sit outside the acting commander's office later that day as another Tucson soldier obtained an actual deed to his home so he could sell it to the American for 10 pesos. This property, by the way, would change hands quickly as Yankees came and went seeking better prospects. Just three years after the soldier sold it to Leach, records show that the house changed hands six more times. That January, Comodoran was also visited by Pedro Ramirez, who was seeking back pay for work that he had been doing as a constable in the community. Originally, doing his civic duty was enough, and payment could come later. But with the withdrawal of Mexican troops, he realized that he might never see the salary owed to him. Though the amount was roughly $26, Comodoran didn't have any money to hand over. So instead, he granted Pedro a land grant, just south of the old Presidio. In so doing, he had authorized the last Presidio grant for Mexican Arizona. Just you know, 
The land question is going to continue to be a headache for years for both the Mexicans and the Americans. After some of the Mexicans left, there was something of a free-for-all to grab up suddenly available houses and land. In 1862, the Union Army commander for the area would call upon everyone in Tucson to register their real estate just so there was finally a tidy record of transactions. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo had laid out a process for determining and considering land claims, but this would not even reach the area of the Gadsden Purchase until after 1870 and prove woefully inadequate mainly because surveyors and bean counters would have to verify things, then send them to Congress for approval. By 1888, Congress had most of the claims in Arizona in hand, but had not acted on any. Three more years would go by before Congress created the Court of Private Land Claims, which then took another 13 years to get through the work. So we are now in the early 20th century still deciding these things. And that doesn't even cover the appeals that came after the official rulings. It's during this turbulent time that we get the infamous Baca float, which I can't get into here, but it's on my list of things to talk about moving forward. There is one last bit of minutia from this process. The court eventually ruled that the Tumacacri Calabasas property, where Gondara had his sheep ranch, had been illegally obtained by Francisco Aguilar back in 1844. It was a too little, too late vindication of the Odom right to the land, but they never got a chance to recover it. But now let's get back to our main narrative. The time was fast approaching for everyone to decide where they wanted to end up once the U.S. had established control over the Gadsden Purchase. In January 1856, Adjutant Inspector for Sonora, Ignacio Pesquera, directed the transfer of troops from Tucson to a new base of operations at Imuras. Pesquera is on the cusp of being an incredibly powerful figure in Sonora, and will vie with Gandra to be the political boss of the state, something that will actually play heavily in our episode next week. The two-back garrison is at this point already at Santa Cruz, suggesting that even if Zenteno did not carry out his threat, it didn't really matter. Comandaran and a small force of men were left behind to guard equipment and supplies while the remaining soldiers and their families headed south to their post. With no elected justice of the peace or other officials about, Comandaran and Sergeant Joaquin Morales would govern Tucson during the very last days of Mexican rule. In March 1856, Captain Garcia, who had returned from his work with the Boundary Commission at the end of 1855 and then led the bulk of the troops to Amuras, returned with a small group of men to oversee the final transfer of men and supplies. We also have a small group coming up from Santa Cruz to help escort those few civilians who decided they wanted to live in Mexico. On March 10, 1856, a somber group led by Garcia watched as the green, white, and red flag of Mexico was lowered over Tucson for the last time. And with that, it was time to head south. But because history is the gift that keeps on giving, there was one bit of drama left to play out as the soldiers are marching 
out of town. You see, a small group of Americans, state historian Marshall Trimble says there were something like 17, stood and watched this whole procession leaving. That's when store owner Edward Miles turned and handed the American flag to a young Virginian named Bill Kirkland. Kirkland took the flag with relish, and after affixing it to a mesquite pole, he climbed to the top of Miles' small adobe store and raised the stars and stripes proudly over Tucson. As you might expect, the Americans let out a series of cheers at seeing their flag now waving over the new territory. Also, as you might expect, some of them pulled out their Colt revolvers and fired some rounds in celebration. Now, this is all well and good. Huzzah, we are in charge now, and what have you. Except, technically, this was a treaty violation. The Border Survey Commission had agreed that the American flag could not be displayed until the last of the departing Mexicans was gone from Tucson. When he heard about this, Captain Garcia turned right around, walked up to the Americans, and pointed this fact out, asking them to please desist. You probably saw this coming, but the American men not only stubbornly refused, but they took their guns, so recently pointed upward in celebration, and now leveled them in the captain's direction, making it perfectly clear that the American flag had been raised, and it was staying up now no matter what. Facing this one last Yankee indignity toward Mexican rule, Garcia decided it wasn't such a big deal after all and turned around to head south with his men. As everyone took the dusty road toward the official beginning of Mexico, they were caught up in a heavy rainstorm that served to damper everyone's morale just a bit more. It was a cold, hungry, and tired group that eventually made it to their new home in Santa Cruz. For those who actually stayed in Tucson, it was time to see what this new era would bring as more and more Yankees began to drift into the area. To demonstrate the sense of optimism that ran through the place, we have the words of Carmen Lucero, who was a little girl when the transfer happened. She wrote, quote, I have often heard my mother say that the coming of the Americans was a godsend for Tucson, for the Indians had killed off many of the Mexicans and the poor were being ground down by the rich. The day the troops took possession, there was lots of excitement. They raised a flag on the wall, and the people welcomed them with a fiesta, and they were all on good terms. We felt alive after the Americans took possession, and times were more profitable. End quote. That's where we'll end things this week, as everyone looked toward the future. Join me next time as we talk about the future those people imagined, and follow a group of men whose dreams were, shall we say, more grandiose than most. Because throughout the long process of finalizing the border, and indeed after it was a done deal, there continued to be Americans who thought that while the U.S. was done lopping off sections of Mexico, that didn't mean they couldn't make a few land grabs of their own. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.